Hey everybody, Mark here. Before we get to the interview, I have a few quick announcements to make. The third annual Hack for the Sea will be held in Gloucester, Massachusetts, the weekend of September 21st through 23rd. Tickets are on sale now at Eventbrite, and you can find all sorts of information there, such as problem statements, frequently asked questions, and the like, and on our website at hackforthesea.com. If you love the ocean, you should really consider coming. We're looking to make it more like a jazz festival than a competition. We're focused on making it a healthy event, and we are determined on making it outcome-driven. We want to make technology that helps the ocean, nothing more, nothing less. Again, Eventbrite or HackForTheSea.com. Links are in the show notes. And now, our show. podcast. Our guest this episode is an artist, a published author, a public speaker, an educator, a field biologist, a Kron-Drixian expert, and most recently the founder of the Finns United Initiative. We have Melissa Christina Marquez here. Hello, Melissa. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm really great. Thank you for, uh, thank you for taking the time to come on and, and talk to me. Yeah, no, no problem. Um, so for those of you and for those of the audience who are not 100% familiar with your story, why don't you give us a quick rundown of how you got to be who you are now and what you're working on. I have always had a fascination with the ocean. I was born in Puerto Rico, which is an island in the Caribbean, so the sea is kind of in my blood. And it's actually some of my first memories. So my first memories are on the beach with my family. My mom is a scientist. My dad's an accountant. So they've always been really supportive of my dreams of being a marine biologist. Maybe a little hesitant when I said that I wanted to study sharks and their relatives, <laughs> which are chondrichthians. <laughs> um, or they're collectively known as chondrichthians. So a little bit hesitant. I'm pretty sure... Dad would have been happy if I stuck to manatees, uh, which were my first love. But uh, since then, yeah, I did my undergraduate in marine ecology and conservation in a school in Florida called New College of Florida. Mm -hmm. And then moved across the world to New Zealand to do my master's in marine biology, where I got interested in deep sea sharks. And... So while I was in undergrad in Sarasota, I realized that quite a lot of people actually don't know the sharks that live in their backyard, which was essentially at that point Sarasota Bay. And I found it really interesting that all of these people loved going out boating and really being in the water, but not knowing about the animals that were in the water. So... I started a program called Sarasota Fins, which was me going to all these schools and teaching kids and the teachers about these animals. And 
when I was in breaks for like spring break, winter break, summer break, I would do those talks in Orlando, which is where my family was based. And it just kept following me wherever I went. Teachers told other teachers. I started doing Skype calls. And eventually when I moved to New Zealand and continued doing things like that, I was like, all right, I can't call it just Sarasota Fins anymore. So it got rebranded and now it's what the Fins United Initiative is. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I guess the obvious question, why sharks? How did you go from manatees to sharks? In early on. Uh, I think my parents have that question too. And they're yeah. just like, where did we go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I've always had a fascination with misunderstood predators. Uh, I mean, I'm, I absolutely love and I'm enthralled with animals like bears, wolves, sharks, crocodiles. And it, it's just, I feel like sharks are the most misunderstood of all even though they have a whole entire week dedicated to them in the summer in the States. <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> so, yeah, there's just, I don't know, there's just something about them that drew them to me, and I'm like, that's it. These are the animals I want to study. We always joked there's a river up near us called the Merrimack River, and a great white ended up at the mouth of this river <laughs> on Shark Week. So we, we said it knew. It knew it was Shark Week, and it wanted to come. <laughs> um so what's 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 something cool that you can tell us about sharks to illustrate this sort of misunderstood nature about them? I mean, I, I guess if I could represent the audience, you know, sharks are just dead-eyed killing machines that just mindlessly move about the ocean eating whatever happens to go in their mouths. And yeah, that's what most people think yeah. about them. And you know what? They're actually a lot more complex than that. Um, so I think the coolest fact for me about sharks is that on average we're actually um we're discovering a new species about every two weeks whoa so we're over 500 species of sharks alone that's not counting their cousins which are the skates the rays and the chimeras uh which are another like few hundred there wow. so it's a really, really diverse group. I mean, you've got everything from the tiny, tiny pygmy shark, which is like a few centimeters long, up to the whale shark, which is longer than a few school buses sometimes. And so, you know, it's a really, really diverse family. And a lot of people kind of try to lump them in this same kind of stereotype. But it's like people, you can't lump everyone into the same stereotype. It's the same with sharks. Sure, sure. Uh, as for the whole killing machine with sharks, you've actually got a higher chance from dying via heart disease, cancer, stroke, flu, car accident, getting smushed by a vending machine, getting run over by cows. I mean, all of them <laughs> have a bigger chance okay. than dying from a shark bite. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Cows are more deadly than sharks. <laughs> There's actually, I think, a meme of that, where there's like a really angry looking cow staring into the camera being like, I'm a more ruthless killer than a shark or something like that. I love that one. It's That's hilarious. fantastic. Well, why is, <laughs> is it, is it just because of the movie Jaws or is there some other historical precedent to this? I think, I mean, Jaws didn't help. No, no, certainly not. Uh, if you think about it, our, like how humans are wired, 
um, and I read a really good article about this in National Geographic a few years ago, or maybe it might have been recently. There's quite a few articles talking about how the fear of sharks came about. Because a lot of people, when you say shark, the next thing they think is attack. Or they've got mm. a picture in their head of this animal with tons of teeth going after them. And it's kind of rooted into our primal fears of things where we're really afraid of things we can't control. And when we're in the water, we can't control a lot. I mean, that's not where we normally are. We are land animals. We are not water animals. So you've got all of these sudden factors that you can't control. And it just makes it worse. Not to mention, I mean, you've got these animals that bite into you. Yeah. It's not exactly the way someone wants to go. I, I think that's why it's so scary for people. And also, they're not really the cutest bunch to be around. No, they're, yeah, aesthetically, they're not uh, as cuddly as even a cow might be. No, no. I mean, you've um, got, look at orcas, and people love orcas, and orcas are more ruthless than sharks. Oh, yeah. I was just reading about, you know, orcas committing infanticide and doing all sorts of yeah. insane things to each other. And I mean, yeah, it's. Dolphins, dolphins are jerks. <laughs> <laughs> But I do want to point out, or just bring this up, uh, you get bit a lot, or it seems like you do, <laughs> based on uh, based on your Twitter feed and a couple other, you know, we had to reschedule this episode because you were bit at, by a crocodile. Well, it's, it's my first time being bit uh, by an animal this big, but okay. first time was a scorpion bite okay uh, which was a lot of fun long story short um <laughs> it was in Man. my scuba suit that i shook out and it didn't come out probably Ooh. got pissed that i shook it around and it paralyzed my arm for three weeks so uh, so yeah that that wasn't as bad but this one was yeah we <laughs> um yeah this one's new i'm not hoping to repeat it or get any bigger but um, okay. for those who don't know, I got bit by a crocodile on my leg. And, you know, it could have been a lot worse. It didn't tear away any muscle. It literally looks like puncture wounds. Like it was in and wow. out and that was kind of it. Um, thankfully, I was actually just talking to a few friends and I can actually walk on the leg with no pain. I can move around. So I'm finally... Oh, good. Um, it's it's getting there, which is nice, because um, it could have been a lot worse. Either it could have bit down even more, or crocodiles and alligators are actually known to roll uh, when they've got prey. And if that happened, um, my leg would probably not be here, and I might be a bit messed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of physical and emotional so, pain to deal with. Yeah, but you know, the thing that I want people to realize is I don't blame the animal. I don't blame the crew that I was with. It's not the animal's fault. Um, sure, yeah. It was, I mean, it, that's its territory. And honestly, I liken this bite to a shark's exploratory bite. For us, I mean, if you think about it, if you look at a plate of cookies that look a lot like chocolate chip and you go in to take a bite and it's, rat, it's raisins, I mean, that's where their receptors are. That's how they figure out, is this something I want to eat or not? They don't have hands like you and I do to figure out exactly what something is. So it's the same exact thing with this uh, recent animal encounter. The an I mean, again, it could have been a lot worse. And if you look sure. at my leg, 
and you say, holy crap, that's all she got from a 10-foot gate or a 10-foot croc, you'd be like, well, first of all, something was looking out for you. <laughs> but yeah. also, you know, it, it, it could have very easily, They, I think, if I remember correctly, and if I've done my research correctly, crocs have the most intense bite force of any animal. I'm not sure if that's 100% correct, but I think that's what I read, that they have one of the most powerful bite forces. Um, and this was a very tentative bite. To be honest, the bite itself didn't hurt. It felt more like fresher than okay. anything else. Yeah. The thing that kind of had me shaken up was was actually the dragon. Um, but it, it didn't hurt. It was just a little bit of pressure here. It's almost as if someone was gripping your arm really tightly. And yeah. that was it. And so, uh, yeah, that's how they figure out if something is worth eating or not. And I guess me staying still and also me having a scuba suit on, that was how it realized, oh, no, this isn't something I want, and let me go. Yeah, wow. Well, I'm glad you're here. And in, in <laughs> not just on my podcast. I mean, I'm glad you're okay. <laughs> you, me, and a few other people. <laughs> yeah. So is that, um, yeah, you, you know, I think it's great that you don't blame the animal. Um, that's in keeping with, I think, any other conservationist that I would talk to or see on TV or anything like that. Um, is this, yeah, it's, you know, it, there's a risk with these kind of jobs. As a wildlife biologist, and especially one who works with large predators, you know there's a risk. There is always a risk. And it's not even of just the animals itself. I mean, tons of stuff can go wrong when you're scuba diving, period. Yeah. Um, or even if you're in a remote location, a lot of stuff can go wrong. Uh, so there's always a risk with these kind of jobs that you just, you know, you got to keep it in perspective. Um, and I, I would hate for this situation to be blown out of proportion and people start asking to call a shark or do any oh yeah yeah or anything like that like that's that's not what i want i don't blame this animal 100 percent. it was actually it kind of made me sad when i was sharing it and people were like oh is the croc okay and i'm like what do you mean is the croc okay and they're like did they kill it and i'm like no they didn't kill it no, oh my no. god no like if they if, they, if anyone even tried i would get up on my one leg and be like, no, if you're going to try to kill it, you have to go through me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, I watched your TED talk and, mm. um, it was great. Good job. Um, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, it, to, to segue into sort of the, the, what I want to do is sort of go into the darker side of this and then come back out into the light, hopeful side of, yeah. of this topic and um, I, I also recognize I might be stepping in a minefield so give me some rope here as we go through <laughs> this piece of it um, what you know one of the things that you call out is sort of this the parallels between the misunderstood nature of these diverse predators and then sort of the misunderstood nature and the adversity faced by a diverse group of scientists is that fair a yep, fair assessment. Fair, okay, fair cool. Correlation. And um, you know, just just in this conversation, it sort of dawned on me as you're talking about how people aren't able to control things. Um, I think you know part of this thing is that this next generation of scientists, I hope, and uh, I think many others are hoping that it might challenge some of the pre-existing power structures that are in place in both academia and society in general. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I hope that too. You know, it's. 
good that we're having these kind of conversations. Yeah. And having them quite frequently because conversations hopefully lead to action and then action does lead to change. And so the fact that especially these upcoming generations of scientists are having these conversations of diversity, inclusivity, um, talking about how pay grade isn't fair, how work-life balance and expectations in grad schools aren't fair, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they're really trying to shake up what the norm is because the norm isn't really working anymore and it's not healthy. And, you know, it, when you were coming up, I think you probably were more similar to a, a lot of the stories that I've heard about just having no positive female scientist role models kind of preceding you. And of course there were, um, there just weren't as publicized as, you know, some of the other ones. How did you, um, I mean, maybe it wasn't even conscious on your part, but what was your experience of sort of pushing through that to get to where you are now? I don't know if it's just me or if it's because I'm Latina, but I'm very stubborn. (laughs) (laughs) And when I have my uh, mind set on something, oh, I just said I'm stubborn and my husband's like nodding to the side over here. (laughs) Yeah, so it might just be me. It might just be my culture, but uh, I'm very headstrong and I'm very stubborn. When I want something, I go after it. Uh, Even if there's some sort of barrier in my way, I'm very very rarely do i quote unquote give up and i know that i wanted to be a scientist who studied sharks did i know like did i know i was going to end up where i am right now not in a million years but i knew i wanted in some capacity to a be a scientist and b study sharks and nobody was going to get in the way of that uh be it racist or sexist remarks, be it a lack of role models. I mean, yeah, classes were lonely sometimes when I was the only girl, but I grew up with a bunch of male cousins. Like, Mm. I knew something was wrong, but at the same exact time, I just pushed through it. Yeah, yeah, that's, I guess that's what you would, you would hope, um, happen. Sure, sure. And do you feel like um, do you feel like the tide is changing at this point, or I, I imagine there's still a lot of adversity? But okay, I I do think the tide is changing, and I was actually having a conversation uh, with a few of my volunteers from the Finns United Initiative, and we've been having this chat about how a lot of our undergraduate classes we had, well, them more than me because now they're uh, undergraduate and I'm not, but they've noticed that there's a lot of girls in fish biology, in marine biology classes. Um, There's a whole entire network called the Gills Club, which is all about shedding a spotlight on female shark scientists. And it's stuff like that that I wish I had when I was a kid, so I wouldn't feel weird when I'm like, oh, I want to be a shark scientist. And everyone's (laughs) like, what? That's a guy thing. Uh, So, you know, I do think that things are changing. And I'm glad for that because the point of that TED Talk and kind of what my life work is now is that I don't want any kid to look up at scientists and really in any uh, field, but mostly scientists because that's what my specialty is. I don't want them to look up at all of these role models and not find themselves and have them question 
can I even do this? Am I good enough? There's no one like me up there. That is the worst and the loneliest feeling. And I don't want them to go through that. Yeah, I think I think because it compounds things in in compounds adversities in ways like academia is is hard enough to get in and it's set up in general to keep people out. Mm. Um so then when you have issues of of gender and race on top of that, it definitely you know, stacks the cards against a, large populations of people. Um, oh yeah, definitely. I mean, academia, if you're an academia, you have some sort of privilege. I mean, I I know so many people um, from my own country um, or from my own nation, Puerto Rico, who mm. don't have the same opportunities as me because they just weren't able to afford going to school. I was lucky enough to be able to not only have an undergraduate, but then actually graduate from that and yeah. go get my master's. And a lot of people don't get that opportunity, and it's because school is so expensive and getting more expensive as we go. What kind of scientist was your mother? She was a biochemical engineer. Right on. She was actually one of the first, if, I don't remember if this is 100%, and if I say this wrong, she'll probably be like, you got it wrong. But <laughs> I think she was one of the first in Puerto Rico um, in her area, which was really cool. The first uh, biochemical scientist, period? Uh, in her field, I think wow. it was, or in her section. I'm not, don't quote me on that 100%. Okay. <laughs> I should probably check with her. But she was, like, up there when there weren't a lot of women up where she was. If that, there we go. That's a blanket statement. There we go. Okay. That's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Um, yeah, she's been, she's been very supportive. She and my dad, 100%, have been my biggest, uh, not only role models, but also my supporters. Uh, I mean, when I said at the age of 19 that I wanted to go study great white sharks in South Africa, they said, uh, fine, be safe. Yeah. <laughs> like, they've never put, they've never said no. They've always been my greatest supporters, and especially my mom as a fellow uh, woman in STEM. She's, she understands it. She gets it. Yeah. Um, another thing I noticed in interviews with you is that you, you're not pulling any punches in terms of climate change or advocacy around those issues. No. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, no, I, no. I, what are you seeing out in the field? You know, it's really sad. Uh, where I came from in the Caribbean recently, that, um, that led to the cockbite in that area, yeah. probably one of the most pristine coral reefs I've ever seen. And when I came up from that first dive with the other scientists that I was with, we kind of looked at each other and we were just like, I was actually overwhelmed with that coral reef because I just didn't know where to turn. There was such a diversity in corals. There was such a diversity in marine life and all of it was healthy and thriving. And that's because of the such good conservation efforts that they've got in place there. And it made me, I was realizing it when we were doing the, we were going back to the station on the boat right there, that it is so sad that that's not the norm. Yeah. I've been scuba diving since 2009. And the majority of the reefs that I've seen, some part of them has been tainted by coral bleaching or by habitat destruction. And by that, I mean either dynamite fishing 
or people being careless and throwing an anchor on there and mm. destroying a whole entire coral reef area, um, stuff like that. And it's just, it made me really sad that a healthy, pristine reef is not the norm because coral reefs are so important to not only the diversity of the ocean, but also keeping the ocean running and essentially helping out the whole entire planet because the majority of the planet is ocean. So you were working in a lot of schools and stuff. Have you had a chance to sort of do a quick survey of any of the kids' stuff that's out there now? Um, and have you seen a difference in what you see now versus what you see in the in the past? Yeah, actually, um, I actually watch a lot of the kids' shows. Okay. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think I'm doing that. I'm doing that because. I'm actually in the middle of writing a kids book series. Oh, cool. And so I'm trying to kind of get into the mindset of it. And my poor husband has to either watch it with me or has to hear me watching it. Yeah. But he actually asked me something similar. He's like, you know, do you see more strong female protagonists nowadays than you did before? And in a way, yes, but also in a way, no. And what I mean by that is, yeah. yes, there are more strong female role model cartoons there, but the quality of cartoon isn't as high as it used to be. And I'll give you an example. I grew up watching the Wild Thornberries. Mm. I love the Wild Thornberries. For those who don't know what that is, it used to be a show of, in, on Nickelodeon in the States uh, that was about this family. Um, it's a mom, a dad sister, an older sister who was a teenager, like the stereotypical broody teenager, the younger sister who I freaking idolized, and then their adopted son Donnie that they got from the forest, and then a chimpanzee named Darwin, who Eliza, the youngest daughter, could actually communicate with. So she could actually communicate with animals, and her family were wildlife, um, they were wildlife photographers, videographers, basically like uh, David Attenborough, but a wife and husband duo. And they were traveling around the world in a caravan, getting to meet all these animals. And they injected science and natural history into the show without you even knowing it. Yeah. Like you, you just learned really cool things about animals while seeing this uh, show. And it's that kind of cartoon I don't see around anymore. It's more of like, I don't want to say it's vacant, but in a way it kind of is vacant. There's nothing there actually teaching kids that much anymore, at least from what I've seen. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Wise. It, it is. It's almost like they pick a strong female protagonist and then just sort of stop there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's usually, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's usually some sort of sci-fi where it's a princess or it's some cool uh, female protagonist and she's off to save the world or whatever, but you're not really learning with these TV shows, which makes me sad because so many kids watch TV, and instead, if anything, I've kind of almost seen it flip, where now I'm seeing a lot of books with strong female protagonists yeah. that actually teach people things, which is awesome last couple of years, quite a lot of books shedding a light on uh, women in general have come out, which I find really, really awesome. Uh, because it's not something only that, you know, your 
daughter can read, but sons as well can get to know this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. Um, let's bring it back to, to shark science a little bit now. What's your what's your current uh, research focused on? So right now I'm in between a master's and a PhD. Okay. So in my, I don't want to say in my own free time, but in a way it is kind of my own free time. Uh, I'm actually looking at folklore, legends, and myths of sharks and how it translates to conservation efforts. Interesting. Uh, so what I mean by that is, I'll give you an example. Uh, there is, okay, close your eyes and think of sharks. Okay, Some doing people it. think of the movie Jaws. Yes. More people think of Sharknado now. Uh, <laughs> and some people even think of Shark Week. And actually a large majority of people are still afraid of sharks. Uh, Snapchat actually recently held a poll and over 250,000 people voted. And 64 voted, or 64% voted, yes, they are afraid of sharks. But sharks weren't actually always feared. In fact, they were often treated or revered like gods. And so recognizing that the world went from idolizing these animals to pretty much a universal fear of sharks, I wanted to know how people went from having this spiritual connection with these animals to painting them as villains. Uh, so looking at the history, the mythology, and the folklore around sharks and their relatives, and seeing how people form attitudes towards predators, and how those attitudes vary between land and marine predators, and seeing if that perception sways conservation initiatives, which then leads me to the second part of my research, which is to see if the larger region's public opinion towards these animals matches the local folklore myth. Um, and the third part seeing if the myth matches the animal. So an example, uh, yeah. the shark god, and I'm going to mess up the butchering of this name, is Dakuwaka, I think. Okay. But he's from Fiji, and he protects people when they're at sea and the coral reefs. So two-parter, do the sharks actually keep the coral reefs safe? In a way, yes, because coral reefs are healthier if more sharks are present because sharks control mid-sized predators who are either their prey or their competitors. Now, Fiji has almost 70% of the 75-ish reported elasmobranch species inhabiting those waters. 75% of those are considered threatened or endangered. And so that I, those islands communities actually responded by creating the first official marine protected area or MPA for yeah. sharks in Fijian waters. So, did the mythology of this shark god sway conservation initiatives in order to lead to that? That's kind of trying, what I'm trying wow. to figure out. Having not done it's, any of the data collection or research myself, I'm inclined to believe it, but, but I don't know. It, it's been really, yeah. it's been really cool. And you know, not all the folklore and conservation measures line up so nicely. Um, in the Melanesian Islands, especially the Solomon, Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea, uh, the worshipping of sharks is common there. But some cultures, actually even some cultures there, believe sharks are the living embodiment of ancestors. And PNG is home to quite a few threatened sharks. And with many cultures holding sharks in such high praise, 
one would quickly think that the relationship between human and sharks is a good one there, but in actuality, actuality, the trade of shark fins is illegal there, and still many do it in order to help keep their families alive. So it's a really mm, highly yeah. complex relationship between uh, the human and the predators. What is it with the shark fins? Why, why are they so profitable, I guess? Profitable because it's just such a lucrative um, industry. I mean, to be honest, the majority of it, I guess, now is black market because it's illegal in so many places. But it is very much a culture thing in Asia where people believe, uh, well, first, shark fin soup was a culture thing that if you had shark fin soup at any of your celebrations, you were obviously wealthy. Uh, but also, a lot of people think that. Uh, shark byproducts help cure cancer, mm. prevent illnesses and whatnot. And, you know, the sad truth is, is that's not true at all. Sharks do get cancer. <laughs> this whole, oh, sharks don't get sick, sharks don't get cancer, it's false. Yeah, that was my uh, high school biology teacher was this guy who, who claimed that Sharks haven't evolved in millions of years. They're perfect, you know, sort of thing. And I think your speciation of, you know, discovering a new one every two weeks is sort of proof negative of that. I don't think, <laughs> I think they're still evolving. And yeah, that's a, that's a cool, yeah, I, mean, I didn't know that statistic, the we two weeks thing. had a hybrid shark. What's a hybrid shark? So I think it was off the coast. Of Australia, that they recently found it. I think it was 2015, uh, and it was two different shark species actually came together. So uh, it was a hybrid black tip shark that contained both the common and the Australian black tip DNA uh, in there. So it was what some scientists said, a potential sign that these predators were adapting to cope with climate change. What that wow. organization was going to do, no one really knew, but uh, it was really cool. That is really cool. Um, yeah, so interbreeding with one another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, oh yeah, the, the, from your TED Talk there, the sort of um, uh, the asexual reproduction of the sharks as well. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Some some females don't need no man. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate, yeah. Uh, now, uh, what's if you could share one really, really mind blowing, mysterious thing about uh, some sharks that either you've studied or read up on? What would that be? Um, some sharks have body parts that glow in the dark. Some lantern sharks, which are deep sea animals, uh, have spines that actually light up to warn predators, like, hey, I've, I've essentially got a lightsaber here, don't mess with me. Um, and some actually have something called photophores underneath their stomach, which lights up as well. That kind of makes them invisible to both their predator and their prey. Whoa. Yes, so some sharks glow in the dark. That's, that's, I think, one of my favorite facts. That's cool. How, how deep down have you been, personally? Personally, uh, scuba diving, I've been a little bit lower than 100 feet. Okay. Um, I 
hope one day to go in a scuba, or not in a scuba, in a submarine, because that would be awesome. Yeah. To go uh, deep in the ocean and kind of see the animals that I did my master's thesis in, because those are all chimeras, which are the uh, cousins or relatives of sharks, essentially, which is really cool, because actually one of the quote-unquote ancient sharks, uh, Helicoprion, uh, which is the ancient shark that a lot of people see with kind of like a buzzsaw mouth. Yeah. Uh, it turns out it's not a shark. It's a chimera. I, I admit I had to look up what a chimera even was when I was reading up, preparing for this episode. And that I, it's okay. Many people do. A lot of people think you study animals with lion heads and goat bodies <laughs> yeah, and the tails. I'm like, no, no, wrong kind of. Yeah, like, no, it's just a weird looking kind of half fish, half shark thing. Yeah. Yeah, they, they are a bit weird looking, but they're really interesting, and we know so little about them. Um, and, you know, they're one of those deep sea animals. I mean, the deep sea is so unknown, and we're constantly learning things about them, so it's it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Just the the first paragraph of the Wikipedia is hilarious because it's like we can't even figure out what to call them. <laughs> ghost sharks, rat fish, spook fish, or rabbit fish. Is yeah, what... there's quite a lot of <laughs> yeah. for them. It's quite funny, but I mean the technology that's going into studying the ocean—it's mind blowing what we've got nowadays um, to study every aspect of the ocean. So. I, I foresee a lot of really cool discoveries coming soon. Yeah, let's let's talk about that then. Let's let's round this out with a, just a quick talk about technology, um, just because it's hack for the sea, and we should, I guess. Um, <laughs> you know, if this is a question we ask everybody is if you had a dedicated group of uh, technologists that were going to spend a weekend working on one of your tech problems, what would you uh, what would you focus that laser beam on, and what would you want to I think it would be on tags, definitely shark tags, uh, just because with the shark tags that we've got now, they're really, really high tech, but they do still present some problems. Um, like a few of them, we just can't get all of our data from unless we have the tag with us. And can you imagine trying to find a tag in a very, very big ocean, like after it's popped up? It's almost impossible sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I think being able to better download the whole database from those tags and creating tags that don't uh, biofile, which is basically if you've put something like a technological piece in the water for long enough, it starts getting algae mm. and particles and all that. If we have a tag that doesn't do that, oh my god, that would revolutionize. Oh, and tags and the receivers, I guess, um, that get that data from those tags. If we have that, not biofile, that would be amazing. Cool. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. If uh, if you listen to the previous episode, um, those two guests were talking about pulling up something from the water that was made of plastic and something had literally been eating away at the plastic. Oh, and geez. they looked at each other like, what was, what's that? You know? <laughs> so, like, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's it's nuts what you have in your oceans. I mean, we just we don't know. No, really no idea. Yeah, that we've got there, uh, and it kind of shows the prioritization of everything. But you know, I honestly, as I love space, don't get me wrong, sure. I'm obsessed with space. 
But I do think we need to put some shift the focus a little bit to our own planet because you know we've only got one. Yeah, yeah. Why do you, I'm also obsessed with space. Why do you think it is that? There's this sort of duality between being loving the ocean and loving space. Is it just the exploratory nature of both, or is... I think it's that, but also you know, um, when we were finishing up a night dive recently, yeah, uh, we were lucky enough to see bioluminescence, and it was such so much bioluminescence. So the water was literally glowing that it looked like constellations. And because we were in the middle of nowhere, there was no uh, light pollution. So not only did you have stars up above you, but we also had stars essentially below us and around us. And I don't know. I don't know if it's just because it's so mysterious or what, but they're both beautiful. And that makes me love them even more. Wow. I'm so deeply envious of that description. That's so cool. Yeah, it was, I, I love bioluminescence. I've been very lucky to uh, be around it and see it quite a lot of times and in different colors. Um, yeah. I definitely want to go to the ones where, you know, you have um, the animals squirting up the bioluminescence and it covers the uh, the waves as they're crashing into the shore. I would love uh, to see that. Yeah. I haven't seen it just yet, but it's, I mean, bioluminescence is fascinating in, in and of itself. It's actually evolved over 50 times scientists think to get to where it is now wow and what is its function what is its evolutionary function there's quite a lot of different functions of bioluminescence actually yeah um everything from communication in between species uh attracting prey uh distracting predators and mating rituals as well cool as I'm a big advocate for science literacy. I'm a big advocate for coding literacy. Sure. Basically, I just want people to read. <laughs> <laughs> just whatever it is, just read anything. Just know what you're talking about. Just know about things in life. Well, thank you so much for uh, for your time. And um, no, thank you.